Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan, your host, and this is a podcast all about learning from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is Tim Harkness. Tim is a psychologist whose day job is as head of sports science and psychology at Chelsea Football Club. But Tim has spent the last couple of years researching and writing his first book, 10 Rules for Talking, an expert's guide to mastering difficult conversations. Thankfully, this was not a difficult conversation, but a really enlightening one. I've learned a lot from Tim, from speaking to him here and from reading his book. And there's plenty of actionable tips and strategies in this episode, which can help you become a more effective communicator. So if you learn something in the next 60 minutes, please think about leaving a review and please do subscribe in your podcast app to stay up to date. Here goes. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, very nice to be here, Nathan. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, I'd just like to start the episode by asking you the, the same question we start all of our discussions with, and that is, what's the wrong you want to write? Well, here goes. In the world of sport, everybody wants to know who the winner is. And we can work it out because everybody knows the rules of competition. The players know it, the fans know it, and the referee knows it as well. But there's a whole other world where we also want to know who the winner is. And this is the competition of ideas. Whether we're having a competition of ideas in the home, in the workplace, or in the public sphere when we're talking about political issues, everybody wants to know which is the best idea. But the problem is we have no rules for talking. And because we have no rules for talking, we don't have a proper competition and we don't know who wins. So the participants don't know the rules, the observers don't know the rules, and there's nobody to adjudicate on the rules. And that means that unlike sport, where we can have a clear competition and everybody knows who the winner is, in the world of public debate, we don't know who's winning. And that's wrong that I want to write. That's really, really well put. And that, I mean, straight away, that distinction there between sport and the, the, the real world is quite, is quite interesting. What is it about the world of sport, which I guess maybe is so, so different to when we're having conversations or debates yeah. in real life? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know if this is totally true, but I read somewhere I can't remember where, that the reason why the rules of sport became codified is because of gambling. And you couldn't make a bet on a sporting event unless there was a definitive way of deciding who had won that sporting event. And there was a time when there was this rapid writing down of all of the rules of sport. So cricket, tennis, uh, football, rugby, everybody started writing down the rules. And, uh, you know, the one story is that there was pressure from the gambling industry because we had to know who won. Mm. And we had to have a fair way of deciding who had won. And, you know, I, I'm just fascinated because we take sport for granted. We just assume that we know who the best football country in the world is because France won the World Cup in 2018. And we forget the incredible amount of work and organization and education that has had to go into the process of coming to that accepted outcome. And 
And if you think of the massive amount of time that players spend learning the rules, fans knowing the rules, so you're you're watching a game mm. and you know the rules, referees being trained, and then you think we have this far more important competition, which is a competition of ideas, and nobody knows the rules. Nobody's being trained in the rules. Nobody's systematically learning them. The problem is when we have two public figures engaged in a competition of ideas, the observers or the fans don't know what the rules are either. So we've got Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson talking in Prime Minister's questions, taking shots at at each other, working according to two completely separate forms of logic. But as the fans, as the observers, we can't go and hang on. Uh, that's a violation of, you know, the, the no handball rule, or you were offside, or you know, you you shouldn't have tripped him in that way. Um, we have no equivalent, and um, you know, I, I just think we need to be doing some work be- because this topic warrants it. And and your background as uh, a psychologist in the sort of private sphere, but then also in elite sport, how did that? How did that that work lead you to start trying to weigh these two things and start trying to think about what the rules are outside of sport? Yeah, I, you know, I I think really it it was kind of more personal than that. Um, in that, when you're a psychologist and you work in private practice, you you have a very particular kind of conversation because you're talking to somebody who's chosen to come and talk to you. And that means that you're already quite a long way towards a, a, a successful solution because the person has already decided in their own minds that you're somebody worth talking to and that they want to change. Um, whereas, and, and so that was my experience for a long time. I worked in private practice for 13 years, but then I moved into an organization and suddenly I discovered, you know, to my surprise that not everybody that I was talking to wanted to talk to me or wanted to change and and that meant that I was having real world conversations and and you know that really was what started me down this journey is kind of realizing that I wasn't actually as good at those real world conversations as I initially thought I was and um, you know needed to start learning about how to have them. Were there any of the rules as they now sort of stand which you saw yourself sort of falling foul of like repeatedly yeah yeah i i I can look back on this and in fact i I can remember the moment when i um so there there are a few great communication books and i'll explain you know why, why my book is different and how it is different but one of the great books is called difficult conversations and one of the key ideas of difficult conversations is that um when you disagree, there are many reasons for disagreement other than that the other person is wrong. And that is, for me, is rule three in my book. Um, remember that the person you're talking to is a good person, competent and worthy of respect. And I think in some ways, you know, that was a trap that I fell into is when I disagreed with somebody, I just thought, no, well, you're wrong. And the reason why we're disagreeing is because you're wrong. And if only you could see it as I see it, then our disagreement would disappear. And I think, you know, I I do remember the exact moment. I remember where I was sitting reading the book when, you know, that kind of um, light bulb went on. Um, And I just thought, no, hang on, you've got to have a better explanation of why disagreement is happening. 
Hey, Nathan here with a quick plug for the Journey Further book club. It's actually perfect timing to be hearing from Tim as the theme we're focusing on this quarter in the book club is communications. So we're diving into various books just like this and pulling out the bite-sized insight which can help you become a more effective communicator at work. It's completely free to join the community and our mission is to make it really easy for you to digest all this interesting material to learn and to progress amongst your peers. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the book club link to sign up. Now back to Tim. Why is it that when people grow up through school and then through work lives that you think we don't pay enough attention to how we have conversations or the words that we use? Why do we kind of, uh, I guess, let it wash over us for the 99% of the time? And and that is so key. And I think the answer to that is that we we actually really good at talking most of the time. So 99% of the time, everything goes fine. You know, we wake up in the morning and we talk to our family and we, we talk to our friends and we talk to our colleagues. And, you know, we're pretty successful. Um, it's just that every now and again, there are a few key ideas or arguments or conversations that we get stuck on. And we don't spend a lot of time having these kinds of arguments. And, you know, I mean, if you think, what is the last, when last did you actually have a, a serious kind of unsuccessful conversation? Mm. They're not actually cropping up every day. But the fact that they, the fa- that they have this disproportionate influence on our lives. And I, I think, you know, if we were to measure them by the effect that they have on our lives rather than by the amount of time that we spend in them, um, we'd realize that actually, you know, it, it warrants developing these these skills. And I guess often the moments when those difficult conversations do come up because it's a bit unexpected or because it's not, as you say, particularly common, sometimes we just want that easy route to conclusion and be like, oh, yes thank God that's over. I can carry yes. on now. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so tempting. You know, I, I mean, you, you mentioned I'm a, I'm a sports psychologist and I used to have this device that measures anxiety and um, we used to put it on golfers and some golfers that hit a putt and you'd see the anxiety rising until the moment the ball drops in the hole, because that's what they care about. Other golfers, you'd see the anxiety rising until the moment they hit the ball. Once they hit the ball, they didn't care what happened. They just wanted it to be over. So the first option is better for performance or does it, is it not necessarily? Yes, because you care about the outcome. Yeah. And I mean, you can't be overwhelmed by that fear, but you know, there's got to be a point to this. There's got to be a purpose. And I mean, that's rule one of my book. It's the very first one is agree what you're talking for. What is the purpose of this conversation? And asking that question that what are you talking for versus what are we talking about? How is it best Mm. to frame that question if you're having a difficult conversation? How is it best to kind of take that step back and try and start from the start? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I would say I'd, I get this one wrong all the time is start a conversation without knowing what it's for. Um, And uh, I think I would have two questions that I'd want to be able to answer. The one would be, 
how would we know that this conversation had succeeded? So, you know, an example I use is um, my wife and I walk the dogs in the countryside and we get lost sometimes. And when we get lost, we we start to argue. Um, and we're arguing for a whole lot of reasons, you know, some of which are that we're tired and we're grumpy and, you know, and, and the other is we might have different opinions about the best way to get home. And, and the conversation will have succeeded when we both agree on the course that we're going to take. That's the definition of when something will have succeeded. So, so I would say we need to be able to answer that question clearly. How would we know that this conversation has worked? The second part of that question is what would change your mind? So I think we've got to go uphill. My wife thinks we've got to go downhill. And both of us should be able to answer the question, what would change your mind? Because until you can answer that question, you may just be in a wrestling match instead of actually a conversation, that, that you're actually just trying to win this thing rather than find out the truth. And when you can answer the question, what will change my mind, you become interested in discovering the truth. So asking that question can sometimes just change the course of a, a conversation entirely. Yes. And, you know, any scientist should be able to answer the question, what would change my mind? That is what turns something into a scientific conversation. Mm. You know, that, that I may think, um, I, I think the moon is not made of green cheese. You know, that, that is a belief that I have. I believe that the world is round. But in terms of the, the moon, you know, I could answer the question, what would change my mind? And there is something that would change my mind about, you know, believing that the world is made of green cheese. And, you know, that that's pretty much someone took me there and, you know, cut off a small piece and gave me a taste and it was green cheese. You know, then I'm going, OK, I've changed my mind. But until that happens, I'm not changing my mind. And that's a scientific position to take. Yeah. As you say, we, we rarely challenge ourselves with that question when it comes to um, much more nuanced areas of yes. discussion. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we need to have that, you know, that, you know, I, I may need, I may believe, for example, that, that in, in my household, we, we vacuum too much, you know, we, we spend too much time vacuuming the carpet. Well, can I, can I say what would change my mind? Um, because then, then we're able to have a productive conversation mm. about, and I go, look, you know, I think we vacuum too much in this house and I think, you know, we all spend too much time doing housework and nothing is going to change my mind. Well, you can't talk about that then. No, no, it's not a very good, it's not a very good starting place. <laughs> no. And I, I guess this, this ties into very well to the second rule, the idea that conversation and getting to a point of agreement takes skill yeah. and effort. Yeah. And yes, the, the, is it? The fact that people do want to take that path of least resistance, which is such a common sort of stumbling block in people having difficult conversations. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think, I mean, w one of the people that I mentioned in my book is Peter Coleman, who's a, an expert in what he calls intractable conflicts. And he says that the more complex an issue becomes the simpler the solution that we want. And, you know, when we find ourselves in a difficult conversation that has taken time and effort, we just become desperate for a fast solution. Um, 
But I do think as human beings, we are capable of tremendous endeavors. We're capable of working really hard on things. But I think we're only capable of working hard when we anticipate the amount of effort that it's going to take. So we become discouraged only when something is harder than we expect it to be. And this is why if we can enter into a conversation, not underestimating the level of difficulty, then I think we can rise to that challenge. Mm. And that's really what rule two is about is, first of all, that some of these conversations, remember not all of them, because some conversations are easy. Some conversations take effort and skill and they warrant that level of effort and skill. And you talk about this in terms of like an equation in the book, a motivation yes, equation. Yes. Can you explain yes, yes. how that works? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I I first came across this. Um, I lived in Durban in South Africa. And, and in Durban, you, you get a house lizard called a gecko. I, I don't know, you know, obviously you don't get them here. Um, and they, they can run up walls and they can run across ceilings. And, and you get a couple in every room in the house. And you get to know them because they're quite territorial. And it's quite fun to sit and watch them in the evenings. And and I was sitting and watching, and, and they, they chase insects and moths. Um, and I was asking myself the question, why does a gecko go for one moth and not another moth? And really, the things that affect whether or not the gecko is going to bother to chase a moth are, first of all, how big is the moth? The bigger the moth, the more likely the gecko is to chase. The second thing is, how far away is the moth? Because the further the moth, the less likely the gecko is to chase. And obviously, those two things interact with each other. That The gecko is more likely to run further for a big moth. But if a small moth is really close, it might just go, well, let's just have a go. And then the third factor is how confident the gecko is of catching that moth. So it's, if it's a highly active moth or if it's a, a well-armored beetle, for example, the gecko's confidence will drop. And, um, and it's less likely to have a go. So those are the, really the three factors of, of motivation is how big is the reward, how big is the task, and how confident are we that we're actually going to succeed? And that confidence is a real, um, it's a real joker in the pack. Because if you take something like playing the lotto, for example, so, you know, um, winning the lottery is a great reward. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely up for 20 million pounds. Um, the task is you've got to buy a ticket, and I can afford the ticket. So we've got this great balance between fantastic reward, attainable task, but my confidence level is low. I don't think I'm going to win, so I'm not playing. That's, that's really my take on, on you know, playing the lotto. So when it comes to conversations, we've got to be thinking, first of all, what is the reward of resolving this conversation? How, how could my life be improved? How could my relationship be improved? if I can actually sort this thing out. Secondly, what is the task? You know, I've got to understand what's actually involved. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book is I could say, well, you know, we've got these 10 rules that you've got to follow. So the way that you make a task manageable is you break it down into steps. And instead of just having this vague, uh, meandering path that you think you've got to somehow follow, uh, you've got this idea, well, no, let, let's apply this rule or that rule, and you make the process much more systematic, and it seems much more achievable. Hmm. And then thirdly, when we have a strategy that we can follow, um, our confidence can be increased. So we need to be managing the reward level, 
the task level and the confidence level. And hopefully that can deliver us useful motivation to, a, you know, a, take on a challenge. I guess sometimes people try and like summarize that as like pick your battles is what people often say, don't they? They're like, yes, yes. And that's true. You know, it, it's completely true. And in fact, one of the other people I mentioned in the book is um, the, the relationship expert, John Gottman. And he said this fascinating thing, which is some successful couple relationships, um, the, the couple just sweep stuff under the carpet. Mm. And, you know, when I was being trained as a psychologist, when we were trained to do couple therapy, we were told every single little thing, you've got to pull it out of the closet and talk about it. You know, you, you can't have any unresolved issues. And what John Gottman is showing is that sometimes couples go, nah, let's just leave this one. Let's not bother about that. We don't agree, but that mutual move on. Mutual agreement. To... Yes, yes. I, I, th that obviously is an important point. Yeah. They, they both decide to drop it. Yes, it, it's not a case of the one person going, you know, <laughs> this is important to you, but I don't care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Um, another thing, and I guess all of this is related, but it comes up a few times in the book, this idea of the fundamental attribution error. Um, mm. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what that is for people who might not yeah. come across it and how, yeah. how do we try and avoid it? How do we try and train ourselves to okay. avoid it? Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, fundamental attribution error is basically the idea that um, the things that I do well, I do well because of me and the things that I do badly, I do badly because of bad luck. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm a squash player and I was playing squash the one day and, um, and I played this shot and it was a really, really great shot. And as I played it, I watched the ball fly, and it was kind of this close to the the um, the wall. And I thought, you know, you're a genius. You, you're fantastic. And and two minutes later, I played exactly the same shot, but this time it just touched the wall. And I thought to myself, oh, unlucky. And you know, th th that really is the fundamental attribution error in action. But the twist to the fundamental attribution error is that we think the opposite of other people. So when other people do well, we tend to think that it's because they've been lucky. And when they do badly, we think it's because they, they meant it or they didn't try hard enough or work hard enough. And this is a problem when we find ourselves in disagreement because the fundamental attribution error is that I attribute our disagreement to the intention of the other person. And when I attribute something to somebody's intent, when I think that we're disagreeing, not because of circumstance or because of bad luck or some simple misunderstanding, when I think that we're disagreeing because this person wants to disagree with me, this person wants to oppose me in some way, that then escalates this conversation. It raises the stakes of the conversation and that makes things more difficult to resolve because there's an emotional momentum behind this conversation now. And but because this is such like fundamental human psychology, you have, yes, you have yes. to be thinking so actively to try and talk yeah. yourself out of it. Yeah, you do. And, you know, that, that, that is rule four is talk fast and slow. That, you know, a, a lot of the time we can just talk freely and naturally and automatically. And, and, and we should, because that's where humor comes from. That's where creativity comes from. That's where, uh, you know, the, the, just just natural warm relating comes from. But I think what we do need are some red flags. 
that we're able to that 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 prompt us to start thinking slowly. That's really the point. That we're not we shouldn't be thinking slowly all the time. You know, we shouldn't be overthinking conversations all the time and second guessing ourselves, second guessing the other person. You know, as human beings, we're good at talking. But when we spot red flags, then we need to be paying extra attention. And one of the red flags is for sure if I'm starting to think I'm right, you're wrong. That that's a red flag, and and then I really need to carefully start examining this conversation. And it's a very natural place for us to go. We're disagreeing. I'm right. You're wrong. I, then I need to to notice that red flag and start thinking about whether I'm a victim of the fundamental attribution error. Mm-hmm. That's red flag number one. Red flag number two, which is a very useful red flag, is when I start to hear extreme words. Uh, you always. You never. This is completely, um, you meant, you intended. When, when I start to hear the strong words like that, that's when I need to um, respond to another red flag and, and slow things down. Mm. It's interesting because the, the difference between the words you might hear in the personal versus professional environment, like y- y- people so often avoid using words like always or intended or you meant this. People are so sometimes maybe too shy from using them because maybe they relate them to having a to having a big argument at home or yeah, having yeah, a, yeah. a slanging match with someone. Yeah, I don't know. Is it you end up not having good conversations in some areas because you're afraid of how your experience from yes, others? Yes, yes. You know, you say that, and when I when I first started running workshops on this topic, um. I found that we all were very good at implementing the rules around safety. So we were all good at calming things down. We were all good at de-escalating, making sure that other people didn't get upset. But you can do that at the expense of the accuracy or the effectiveness of the conversation. So the point you're making is an extremely important point because we shouldn't have to sacrifice effectiveness in order to achieve safety especially in a work situation we want to be talking about the world as it is we don't want to be taking a a a fuzzier muted version of the world because then we can't really respond to opportunities we you know we, we we're dulling our our potential to um, to be creative or to be skillful or to, you know, e- exploit situations as they are. So, yes, a, a very, very important point that we shouldn't have to sacrifice effectiveness and accuracy for safety. And I guess that that ties into the whole thing of having these rules understood and agreed. People can be less, say, perhaps alarmed if someone uses more direct language because it's like, oh, well, I can see that perhaps they're trying to progress the conversation in a certain way or they're trying to really um, make a clear point on this yes and you know I, I i don't know what it's like for other people i i, I came to realize uh, for myself that, that the family i grew up in we tended to use fairly oblique language so we um we would talk around a topic mm. wouldn't say um you know we wouldn't really call a spade a spade um we'd kind of describe what it was or we'd hint what it was um, and expect the other person to 
um, to to put the pieces together. Whereas sometimes when you're relying on the other person to do a lot of interpretation, well, what if they get that interpretation wrong? Whereas if I can just talk simply and accurately about what it is that I actually mean, even though I'm being more accurate, more direct, I'm actually being more safe also. Because mm. I think there's something interesting around how different cultures and different sort of personality types interact with the, the yeah. different rules that you've laid out as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I always remember I had a, uh, a client in a previous agency uh, who was Dutch and right. I'd never met many Dutch people before. Okay. And it, yes. I know what you're going to say, but <laughs> carry on. <laughs> and since, um, and when I first started working with her, me and my colleagues, uh, were like, Oh yeah, it's, I mean, it seems fine, but she seems very direct. Yes. Um, yes. Th there was, there wasn't much uh, like n nicety or, the sentences mm. were short, the the written sentences and the spoken sentences were quite yeah. very to the point. And we were like, is, yeah. is, is, is she, is she maybe a bit annoyed at how things are going? Is there something we've not spoken about? Um, yeah. but it turned out like not at all. I think it was more just a, potentially a, a, a cultural thing of, um, we were used to communicating in one way and she was used to communicating slightly differently. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's always kind of stuck with me as a bit of a reflection on like, um, yeah, I guess open-mindedness, really. Mm, mm. No, it, it is fascinating. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, you know, I've also spent a bit of time working in the Netherlands, um, you know, and I had an experience of working uh, with the Saudi Arabia national football team. Yeah. And that is the most different culture I've ever come across. Because it's a very insular culture. You know, Saudis don't often go outside of Saudi Arabia. And, and outsiders don't often go into Saudi Arabia. And suddenly I was immersed for two months um, with a group of young Saudi men. And culturally so different, but individually so similar. You know, the, 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 the people, people are the same. So once you'd got through those, once you'd recalibrated to the cultural differences, what people wanted, what people strove for, what people cared about, what they were afraid of, it was all the same. And, you know, that, that, that was an amazing learning experience for me. And you, you tell a great story in the book around how maybe their expectations were, were greater than what, maybe what your expectations were of yeah, the performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, I just think in, in terms of courage, the, these young men were fine, fine young men. You know, I'd, I've got a photograph of so, so Saudi Arabia were the lowest ranked football team at the World Cup in 2018. Um, and physically, they were quite a small group. When they played Russia in the opening fixture, I think on average, they were outweighed by, they were eight centimeters shorter than the average Russian. And I think they were, I don't know if it was 14 kilograms lighter than the average Russian. A massive size disadvantage. My favorite photograph from the whole World Cup is one of the players standing next at a corner, one of our fullback standing next to the Russian striker that he was marking. And this guy's more than head and shoulders taller than him, but he was just not backing down. Um, and, and, you know, he, he stopped the striker from being effective at that corner. And you could just see the determination in his eyes. Mm. Um, fine, you know, phenomenal individual. Um, but in terms of the expectations, 
it was very difficult because all of the Saudi players played inside their own internal league. So they had not competed in the outside world and, and didn't have a lot of information to judge their relative ability on. So that puts you in a tough situation. It's always tough when you don't have information to make a prediction. And I guess when you're at that when you're at that physical disadvantage like you described, that's probably where communication is even more important, where it can become your advantage, right? Yeah, yeah. So after that, I um, I went and did some work uh, in Egypt uh, with a, a football club in Egypt, and this club had just been uh, taken over by a wealthy owner, and um, and he had bought some players in. And all of the players that he brought in were Brazilian and spoke Portuguese. Um, and he had only brought in forwards. So the, the, the defenders and the midfielders were all Egyptian and the forwards were all Portuguese. And, you know, one of the comments that the coach made is there's a lack of communication between the forwards and the rest of the team. And, you know, this was a literal problem. It, it wasn't just that, you know, somehow there were some nuances in terms of the style of play. Literally, they did not speak the same language yeah and one of the exercises that we did was just to sit everybody down and say we need 40 words that everybody in this team understands um and set about you know deciding what those 40 words were going to be that's really interesting it's like creating a just creating a new basic yeah, language yeah everybody's got to know you know and we said uh, i can't remember 25 percent of the team is um is speaks portuguese so we're going to have 10 portuguese words and, um, you know, then we're going to have Arabic words. And there was one German player and we, we gave him one word that he could put in there. Interesting. To, um, you know, just to... democratic. Yeah, that, that's it. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's quite an interesting way. And, and you mentioned before around the idea of, of talking fast and slow. Um, yeah. Obviously, from, the, from Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, um, applying that thinking. Yeah. The really interesting, one of the really interesting parts of me in the book and related to that is this idea around complexity and going from the general to the specific yes. or, the, or the particular. Yes. And yeah. yeah, just really reflecting on it, I was like, that seems increasingly where we fall down now that we just like things to be black or white binary. Yeah, and yeah, yeah verging towards complexity is seen as a like well we'll we'll stay clear um how how can someone learn to um take a conversation in a more complex route how can someone use complexity yeah yeah Yeah. well you know so very simply the one thing that you can do is just insert the phrase this is complex into the conversation and once you do that, it, it forces people to move away from the binary black and white, I'm right, you're wrong kind of thing, just to say, this is complicated. So that's the starting point. And then once we accept that this is complicated, then as human beings, you know, we're intelligent creatures. Then we have the ability to, to start investigating that complexity ourselves. So, you know, that's the beginning of it. But in terms of complexity itself, we really need to be looking at three things. That the first idea of complexity is um, that things have multiple dimensions. So I was watching uh, this morning, um, the other day, and um, 
and one of the presenters was saying he had had a job uh, ev- evaluating houses. He, he was on a TV show and, and they would ask him to walk into a house and talk about the house. And he said what was hard is that he would walk into this beautiful house and all he could think of to say was, wow, wow. You know, and, and obviously the house is this complex entity, but he had no way of breaking down what it was that so impressed him. And really, he's got to be looking at complexity in three ways. First of all, that this house has multiple dimensions, that this house has size, it has a shape, it has light, it has a color, it has fittings, it has decorations, it has a flow. So those are all different dimensions of the house. So instead of saying, um, wow, he could say, this house is so big, or this house is so airy, or the flow between this room and that room is so fantastic, or look at the view. So that's the first thing that he can do, is start to look at all of the different dimensions of what makes this house uh, impressive. The second component of complexity is degree, is that this house is not either massive or tiny, it's somewhere in between. And he can describe where that house is in between, that this is a, you know, a a medium large house, or this is a very small house, not the smallest house I've ever seen, it's a little bit bigger than that. Or he could describe the view that out of this window, the view could not be any more beautiful. But out of this window, you know, the view is moderate or so, you know, he's he's putting a degree to that. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that he's doing is he's talking about how the dimensions interact with each other. So you may have a house with beautiful windows, and that's one dimension is the fact that you have beautiful windows, but you also get lovely light coming through the windows. And the light interacts with the shape of the house, what interacts with the color on the walls. And it really, you know, enhances this color and, and, you know, or maybe it's a small house and that means that the flow is so important. So those two things interact. And once you start to acknowledge that every, everything has, well, not everything, but most things have multiple dimensions, within each of those dimensions have degrees, and those dimensions interact, that's quite a nice way of beginning to engage with the complexity of, of many things. That's interesting. So just those three words saying this is complex can... yes advanced things great so place to start yeah and then we just rely on our own natural intelligence which we've all got yeah and this is this is also what you talk around about the methodology of a conversation but being able to yes. lay those foundations of what's being discussed or the process yeah. to take yeah. and you know if i can just pick up on that because one of the questions obviously you've got to ask yourself is when you write a book in an existing genre You've got to ask the question, what am I writing this for? You know, what what do I think I can contribute? Especially when the genre is a, a phenomenal genre. You know, you've got books like Difficult Conversations, Crucial Conversations, Getting to Yes, The 5%, um, which are written by real experts. And what and, and what they're all really good on is the methodology of a conversation. What I wanted to try and include in my book was the idea that conversations are not only about methodology, 
They're also about relationships. They're about personal resilience. And they're about critical thinking. So that's what I wanted to bring extra to this topic, is the idea that sometimes it's hard to follow the methodology because there may be a fundamental relationship problem. Or sometimes it's hard to follow the methodology because I'm feeling vulnerable and I may need to apply some resilience skills. And, you know, the, the, the most, well, in, certainly in terms of public conversations, one of the most common reasons for a failure to agree, and, you know, I, I think Prime Minister's questions is a great example of this, is a failure of critical thinking. In Prime Minister's questions, one of the people in that conversation is not applying critical thinking. And it's hard to have a conversation when two people are not mm. applying critical thinking. They're kind of often just aiming for the, the, the biggest chair. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and, and again, you could say, what is the purpose of that conversation? To go back to rule one, what are they talking for? Because they should really be talking to clarify or to come to a better understanding of the real problems facing this country, the real challenges facing this country, and to understand what the solutions to those challenges are. It should be a collaborative process. But unfortunately, often, they're just talking to score points of each other, and specifically to score points in the eyes of their own supporters. Because when Boris Johnson says of Keir Starmer, you've got more flip-flops than Bournemouth Beach, that does not impress one single Labour voter, but it impresses a lot of Tory voters. And in that sense, as far as Boris Johnson's concerned, it's been a successful comment. But in terms of the country as a whole, it's not a successful comment. It's, it's crazy, though, the contrast between the political world and the professional world, say. There's, there's no way in the professional world that you could... Um, you could make so a name like by being <laughs> like by simplifying everything everyone would be like yes, well this yes. is not uh, people buy into complex systems and yeah, um, yeah, detail yeah. but yeah. The, these things are sort of diverging people are in the professional sense of buying more and more complex technology and all that thing but then politicians yes. are seeing this other opportunity right now seemingly yeah yeah, you know, that that is true. And uh, years and years ago, I'd, I worked in the banking world, um, teaching people resilience. And I was amazed that these banks were actually so poor at this particular area of looking after their staff. And I said to a friend of mine who worked in banking, you know, what does it say about the level of competence in in banks? And he said, banks are really good at their core business. So when it comes to actually making money and managing money, the conversations that have happened in banking are of a very high caliber. But when it comes to things like politics and relationships, the quality of the conversation drops off. And I would say that possibly applies in the, in the professional world as well. So when we're talking in our areas of expertise, we are able to talk precisely, accurately, and with a good methodology. Mm. But even in the professional world, some of the time we end up talking about relationships or politics or trying to persuade somebody. And that's where we, we need to apply the same skills that we're applying in these technical conversations. We want to be able to apply them in, in the more personal conversations as well. Mm. And another really interesting bit, which I 
just find gave me real clarity um very much related to the sort of political sphere is around trolls and snowflakes right can you can you sort of share that the the around the definition which you describe about what these yeah. two things actually mean yeah 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 so you know obviously we get exposed to this you know this notion that you're being a snowflake or that you're being a troll and and what i tried to answer is well what actually makes somebody a snowflake um because if it's to be a useful description it has to have some kind of definition to it you know i can't just call somebody a snowflake because i feel like calling them a snowflake and what i said is that for somebody to qualify as a snowflake um there need to be two two conditions the first condition is that the person is incorrect in the emotion that they're experiencing so, you know, the first condition to be a snowflake is that if you're upset about something that you should not be upset about. So, you know, if it's, um, if, if it's a, a little bit sunny outside and, you know, you, you really get upset because, oh, no, it shouldn't be sunny and, you know, I, I hate it's too hot for me and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you're getting more upset than is warranted. Then that's the first condition of being a snowflake. The second condition of being a snowflake is that your emotion is uncontained you're not able to manage that emotion. So, you know, let's take another example. Uh, I'm, you stand on my toe. And I may start to think to myself, you know, did you mean to stand on my toe? Was this, have you meant me some kind of slight? And I, I get inordinately upset about it. That would be the first condition of being a snowflake. But I'd also have to meet the second condition of being a snowflake, which is that that would have to be uncontained. I would have to start to rant and rave. Nathan, you stepped on my toe. You meant to step on my toe. This means that you are this kind of person. Then I'm being a snowflake. I'm wrong and I'm not hiding it. But in any other conversation, if, for example, somebody stepped on my toe and they did mean to stand on my toe, then if I get upset about it and I start ranting and raving about it, I'm not being a snowflake because I'm right to be upset. On the other hand, if somebody steps on my toe and I get a little bit upset, but I don't let on, I'm not being a snowflake because I'm kind of keeping it to myself. And, um, you know, I, I think to apply that kind of uh, strict um, definition to snowflakes actually quite significantly narrows the group of people that we can accuse of being snowflakes. Because uh, I think some people get accused of being a snowflake because they might try and introduce complexity. They might say, "Oh, well, no, this is a this is an important issue. This is serious. Like, yeah, you're yeah. you're you're simplifying this." And people go, "Oh, don't be a snowflake. This is very clear. What's going on here?" Yes, yes. And you know, my, my response to that would be, "Well, how do you define a snowflake then?" Because if a snowflake is just anybody that you disagree with, you know, th that's not a useful description then. When when a conversation has sort of a, a difficult conversation has ground to a halt, yeah. What 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 do you do then? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, to go back to John Gottman, this is a technique that he uses: is twenty minute timeout, and he says, "Everybody, let's just go away for a bit, and um, let everybody settle down." You know, we know that. Um, when we're, we're psychophysiologically aroused, it's harder for us to think clearly. Sometimes we do just need to go away and calm down a bit and come back later. Mm. Um, so, so that's quite legitimate um, to do. Um, but I, I think when we've reached a kind of stalemate, 
often we need to go back to rule one. And it's, what is this for? What are we trying to achieve? And, and rule one is, is really agree what the conversation is for. So, and, and we may not be able to agree, you know, if we're having a, a, a disagreement in the workplace, if we're having a political disagreement of some kind, we may not be able to agree on the actual issue at hand, but we can agree what the conversation is for. We can agree what we're trying to do. So, you know, I'd, I'd always bring it back to rule one. And it's hard to do because when you're in the middle of that conversation, you think that you need to carry on at 100 miles an hour. You don't. Go back to rule one and just decide what is the purpose of this conversation. That's interesting because one of the um, examples which I jotted down of sort of recent examples of difficult conversations um, was a, a whole company conversation which we had around diversity in the wake of the George Floyd killing in the US. Okay. Um, and obviously the fallout of that, there was quite rightly so much noise being made by individuals and by companies and organizations yeah. saying yeah. what they believed and what they wanted to do next. Um, yeah. And yeah, we had a, a an, an all company meeting, but it was, it was an incredibly difficult conversation because this it's, I guess for many reasons, but so complex to begin with and everybody has such an individual view on it yeah everyone's got an individual view but also a feeling that things need to change and yeah yeah the 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 difficulty was it was almost well there's hundreds of different individual factors involved in this um and really trying to tackle that simple question which you put well what what are we trying to achieve here is still probably the biggest thing which we're trying to tackle yes 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 and and i think that's an example where um where that rule is really useful because i think for white people and you know remember i'm i'm not just a white person i'm a white south african so you know, I've, I've lived through this in a more explicit way mm. than many white people in the US or, or the UK, for example. And I, I think one of the things that is hard for white people around this is the notion that what is what is the fact that systemic racism exists say about me? Um, how may that make me culpable? So that's one uncomfortable thing for for white people. Another uncomfortable thing for white people is, were we to to reduce the disadvantage that black people face, how will that impact on me? Will that mean that I have to take some level of disadvantage into my own life when maybe I don't feel like a lucky person? You know, I I don't necessarily feel like life is easy for me. Um, So how could I, you know, surrender some of the advantage that I supposedly face and hand it over to somebody else. So I, I think those are two um, two difficulties that white people have when they talk about racial justice. Um, and and this is where I think rule one is particularly important: is what are we trying to achieve with this conversation? Because if we're trying to pander to the emotional insecurity of white people and um, and, you know, reassure white people that, look, systemic racism exists, but you're not a bad person. You're still okay. 
if that's the conversation that we need to have, fine, let's have it. But that's a different conversation from how we um, dismantle the systemic disadvantage that black people face in society. So we, we, we need to be sure what we're talking about. Exactly. I mean, there's what you talk about there is kind of that loss aversion thing, right? It's, well, what, what risk am I taking for what potential gain by having the having that conversation and i guess that comes into the way you talk around using a methodology but there's multiple conversations there which need to happen in a certain order perhaps yeah and you know that thing that comes back in some ways to the the motivation conversation that one of the things i've got to bear in mind is what is the reward for me and as a white person when you consider that society maybe need to be reorganized in a way where you lose some of the advantages. And let's just take employment, for example, that we know that when a CV is sent in for a job application with a white name and a black name, the white person is more likely to get that job than the black person. We know that, that that is a fact, that has been demonstrated. And were that advantage to go away, some white people are gonna lose out on jobs. So, you know, that, that's something white people have to accept is why would I want to support a change to an environment where I'm less likely to be employed than I am now? And that's a cost to white people. And obviously a cost is not a reward. So whatever the reward is, it would need to outweigh that cost. And one of the rewards that, you know, comes to me most strongly, and, you know, like I said, I'm South African. I lived through this. I lived through apartheid, which is not just systemic racism. This was explicit, deliberate, legal racism that I lived through. And Nelson Mandela, in his inauguration speech, said to me something that is incredibly important about all of this, is that oppression strips the oppressor as well as the oppressed of their dignity. The oppressor also lose their dignity. And as white people, when we participate in a system that is unfair, that constitutes a loss of our dignity. We are less dignified when we steal all the advantages. We are less dignified when we insist on being advantaged. And we are more dignified, we can be more satisfied with ourselves as human beings when we seek actively to create a fair society. And to me, dignity is one of the core needs that human beings have. Those are such powerful words, and as you say, the the gaining that perspective on what the potential rewards are, which might not be as immediately clear as yes. what that cost, yes. that very tangible. Absolutely, cost is. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's true. You know, we we can all kind of either consciously or subliminally, we we kind of know what the costs are, um, and we've got to deliberately think about what the rewards are. Also, Tim, it's been a it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I've got three final questions to ask you Mm. firstly what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in you know i'd i'd go back to that idea that when i disagree with someone it's because the other person is wrong that's a belief that has changed for me Mm -hmm. and do you still have to kind of um i guess consciously remind yourself (laughs) yes i get that wrong all the time yeah i've Mm -hmm. got to try and remind myself that yeah Secondly, if this wasn't your your mission, trying to define rules for talking, trying to define how we can have more productive um, conversations, uh, what would be? Well, 
you know, I, I love walking the dogs and um, I'd love to, to sail around the world. Uh, you know, so, so those are two things, but I'd, I'd, I would say, you know, I, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd, I lived through apartheid and, and when I look back at apartheid, I think to myself, did I do enough? And, and I didn't, uh, no, I, I didn't do nothing, but I didn't do enough. And we find ourselves at a point in history now where there are injustices and there are inequalities. And I want to be sure that I don't look back on this a second time and think I didn't do enough. And for all of those people going through this for the first time, I would offer this experience that it's not a comfortable feeling looking back in a moment of history and thinking I didn't do enough. And then finally, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club to read, yeah. what would it be? It can be your own, but can it? frowned upon. <laughs> Is it? Okay, all right. Well, well I'll, I'll take that piece of advice then. Um, and I can only do one. Well, we can play fast and loose. You can, you can throw a couple. All right, all right. I, I think one of them that, that I found particularly amazing is a book called The Righteous Mind by um, Jonathan Haidt, uh, which explains that as human beings, we have this possibly innate morality, that, that we, we're inclined to, we're born as moral creatures, and we have a, a moral palate. And that palate becomes educated, just as our actual palate becomes educated, and we become more inclined to some tastes than others. Um, morally, we, we, while we are able to appreciate all of the moralities, um, we, we, um, we become, we prioritize some over others. And it's just this wonderful view of um, the, 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 the fact that as human beings, we're all moral. Um, but some of us prioritize different moralities. And if we can only realize that we actually share so much more real morality than, than we uh, differ on, um, it's just really the priorities that, 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 that tend to um, distinguish between us. Um, we can see that largely we, we occupy the same moral universe and we can trust and respect each other for that. Uh, so that's Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind, an amazing book. Um, another book that I'm reading at the moment is called Donut Economics. And it's just a really simple yet profound criticism of the way that we currently understand the economics of the world. Um, you know, this obsession that there's this one simple simplistic measure that tells you whether a country is doing well or not, and that's GDP. Um, it's such a poor way to understand how well a country is really doing. And the amazing thing is the people who invented GDP never meant for it to be this universally accepted measure. It's become that over time. And it's used so simplistically by politicians to um you know to to as a measure of whether the country is being successful or not or as a as a kind of guide for what we should be doing um you know we shouldn't work for gdp gdp should work for us and um that's donut economics a really profound uh book with you know a commentary on social justice that's really interesting i've heard of that but i've not uh, i've not read it and i will i will try to on the first point on the first book i guess that really speaks to the very human element of what we're talking about here right that yeah you can have the 
the, the understanding the methodology and the the strategies you can use is so important but being yes. able to establish that yes. connection yeah and see each other as human so important and and even when we feel like we disagree strongly on things um you know to actually understand this person is also a moral person person also has values and these are valid values mm. Tim, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure speaking with you. I've uh, I've really enjoyed the the conversation. Likewise, me too. So thanks, thanks for having me, Nathan. As ever, thank you for listening to the very end. I hope that means you learned something during the last sixty minutes. If that's the case, please do think about leaving a review with your feedback. I would really, really appreciate it. Secondly, another reminder to join the Journey Further Book Club. We share bite-sized insight from the best business books over email and LinkedIn every single week. It's completely free to join. Just go to journeyfurther.com to sign up. And if you're looking for another episode to dive into, I would really recommend the conversation I had with Damien Hughes. Damien also works in the world of elite sports. He's a professor of organizational psychology and change. And I spoke to him about his book, The Barcelona Way, How to Create a High Performance Culture. I think it's been our most popular episode to date, actually. There's so much interesting stuff in there. So do go and check that out. That's enough for me for now. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you again for listening.